Over the holiday break, we are bringing you The Sound Aquatic, a five-episode mini-podcast published by Hakai Magazine in May of 2021. Here's episode four, Learning to Speak Whale. Baby talk. It's an enchanting language. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm watching you. You're cute. Nose. Nose. Papa. Nose. Yeah. Bet. Oh, really? Bet. Mama. See, Mama. No matter what culture you grew up in, you learn to speak this way too, by listening to your mother or the people you live with. The same is true for resident killer whales in the Salish Sea along the west coast of British Columbia and Washington State. Baby resident killer whales learn their pod dialects from their mothers and their close kin. Surprisingly, not many other animals do this. Whales are among the very few mammals that have the ability to learn sounds that they hear in their environment and to reproduce them. And and so that ability of the animals kind of opens the door to, I think, more advanced ways of using sound underwater to keep in touch over long distances, to have a family badge that indicates who that animal is because it's learned the particular sounds from its mother and its close kin. And uh, by learning that, they, they acquire and keep that dialect, it seems, for their lifetime. My name is Ellen Kelsey, and you're listening to episode four of The Sound Aquatic, The Ocean and the Anthropause. It's 2021, and everyone is talking about cultural diversity. published by Bloomberg has named Vancouver the anti-Asian hate crime capital of North America. It's a title that doesn't come as a surprise. Culture drives every aspect of our human societies. Believe it or not, there's culture in the ocean too. In this episode, we'll be exploring how the sounds that ocean animals make both shape and reveal the remarkable cultures that exist beneath the waves. Dr. John Ford has been listening to resident killer whales for more than 40 years. He's the person who discovered the role that vocalizations play in the cultural evolution of these whales. Culture shapes what and how killer whales eat, what they do for fun, even their choice of mates. And I I know, John, when I first knew you, uh, your ability to hear those different dialects was so attuned that at, you know, in the early days, you were much stronger than a computer. Is, is that still true? <laughs> you know, so well, uh, my ears aren't what they, my, my ears aren't what they used to be, unfortunately, because uh, too many years in noisy boats damaged my hearing and I can't quite hear those high frequencies like I used to. But I'm working with some very talented uh, young colleagues and students who have really good hearing. And it's a bit depressing when they'll bring something up on the computer screen and say, hey, listen to this, will you? And I put the headphones on and listen and hear nothing. So I said, well, could you, could you turn it up a little bit? And <laughs> Before we go any further, it might be helpful to have a quick killer whale refresher. 
Killer whales are second only to humans as the most widely distributed mammals on Earth. They inhabit all of the world's oceans. In biodiversity-rich areas, scientists have discovered different types of killer whales with distinct cultures sharing the same waters. For example, three distinct types of killer whales live off the west coast of Canada in the United States. These resident, transient, and offshore killer whales are all the same species, yet they have very different cultures. They live in distinct social groups, practice different greeting ceremonies, have different vocal dialects, and hunt different prey. Transients, also known as Biggs killer whales, eat marine mammals, seals, sea lions, and porpoises. They travel in small, quiet groups that rely on stealth to find their prey. We know the least about offshore killer whales, but we think they eat mostly fish. They travel in big groups, 30 strong, and they're noisy. They like to talk a lot. The best understood of the three types are the resident killer whales that John was talking about. Resident killer whales live in close-knit family groups led by the oldest adult female. Both males and females remain in their resident pods for their entire lives. What's fascinating is that transient and resident killer whales never interbreed. Genetic differences between the two types go back at least 700,000 years. This genetic separation is driven by cultural differences. And as John is about to explain, one of the main ways those cultural differences are maintained is through sound. Each resident pod has its own unique dialect made up of about a dozen discrete calls. It's somewhat like learning a human language, I think, in that there's a lot of nuances in the sounds that um, are important to, to be able to make those identifications of what's actually being, being said or being called by the, by the whales. You're a very unique person in the sense that you have a 40-year fluency listening to a specific you know, population. Um, are there things that you're constantly listening for now that you weren't before? Or are you, do you know what I mean? As your fluency has increased and your understanding because of that fluency. Well, what I'm really curious, yeah, what I'm really curious about is, is why these um, family specific repertoires of calls are so persistent. They made recordings back uh, in the 19, early 1950s uh, of killer whales. They had no idea who or what type. Of course, we didn't know anything about them in those days. Uh, but they're, they sound just basically the same as they do today. This one recording... Listen to how similar this call from 1958 sounds to this recording from 60 years later in 2018. For females in a in a matrifocal society like like the resident killer whales, they're the dominant animals, and so anybody in her group is not very likely to change the dialect because she's, you know, the matriarch granny is still making those sounds, and so I think we need to look at um, killer whale dialects in terms of kind of cultural generations in a way. Uh, rather than biological generations, which might be only 20, 25 years, but a cultural generation would be the time period that 
uh, a matriarch would have uh, social influence and dominance over her group. And, and perhaps when she dies, maybe there'll be some sort of accelerated change in the dialect. But so far, most of the key calls sound just the same today as they did back then. John tells me that the transient killer whales, unlike the residents, have a much more dynamic and fluid social system. They share a particular set of sounds across the whole population. They don't seem to have family-specific dialects, probably because they don't have permanent families. But within the resident form, they're, they're very unusual animals in many respects because they kind of break all, a lot of the social rules in that as far as we've seen in 45, almost 50 years of monitoring the population here on the West Coast, no individuals have ever been seen to leave uh, the group in, into which they were born and join another group, which raises the question, well, how do they prevent inbreeding? Resident killer whale females prevent inbreeding with closely related males by choosing mates with foreign accents. Males will mate with females or females will accept mating males from outside the, the kin group. It's likely that the dialect serves as an outbreeding mechanism. So whales might be attracted to others, uh, to mating partners that have a foreign accent, if you like. By choosing males whose calls do not sound like their own, resident killer whale females can engage in healthy genetic mixing and live as permanent members of tight-knit family groups. So it's kind of a, an amazing system that is, I think, without precedent, and, and it's taken many, many decades to really unravel. I asked John how he got the openness of mind to recognize how killer whale vocalizations manifest this unique culture. When it became apparent over the years of work, early years of this work that these were essentially acoustic cultures, culture being behavioral traditions that are passed on across generations by learning. Uh, then it became a little tricky again because when, as soon as you start talking about non-human cultures, some, some people don't really accept that. They... John found his courage to claim killer whales had cultures by leaning on scientists that were listening to birds. And I was emboldened to do that because the bird scientists, study, people studying bird song, we're using those terms, and nobody really raised an eyebrow. But as soon as it was with another mammal, uh, then then there was um, more scrutiny. And now, of course, through a lot of efforts by some of my esteemed colleagues, like Hal Whitehead, for example, has really been the leading champion of uh, showing the importance of culture in the lives of cetaceans. He studies sperm whales primarily, and and um, they're very cultural in what they do. And, and there's been a, a real increase in interest and awareness in recent years of the importance of culture in conservation. A lot of reliance is placed on traditional knowledge that's passed on across generations or within, you know, laterally among different populations, and that it's, um, it's really important to preserve these cultures. The trouble with making a podcast in a pandemic is that when a researcher sends you a file of crazy cool sounds, you've just got to share them. Which means when your daughter comes into the kitchen for a drink, yeah. here is a, it's, all these sounds are made by the same ocean animal, you ready?
Those unbelievable sounds, all made by, yep, walruses. <laughs> oh gosh. And those are just the sounds they make above the water. You will not believe what walruses sound like underwater. Remember Isabel Cote, the researcher we met in episode two? who studies how baby fish find their way to healthy coral reefs by listening? Turns out she did her master's research on walrus vocalizations in the north. Here she is explaining what she found to our producer, Amy Kingdon. Yeah, so my, my project was, uh, was supposed to be to look at whether you could identify individuals from their vocalizations. It's a series of knocks, like... And then they strum like, like a guitar and they make a bell sound. I could recognize individuals and in that there was regional, there were regional dialects. So I got recordings from two or three places in the Arctic and they sounded different. Male walruses modify the patterns of their underwater songs and change what they are singing over the course of a few breeding seasons. The ability of male walruses to create new songs over time is reminiscent of the most famous underwater singers in the ocean, male humpback whales. That iconic recording is off the vinyl album Songs of the Humpback Whale. Released in 1970, it's still the best-selling environmental album in history, and it's credited with helping to kick off the modern-day environmental movement. The album was the brainchild of the eminent scientist Roger Payne. He and his then-wife Katie Payne were also musicians, which enabled them to recognize that the seasonal sounds male humpback whales were making were actually songs. Christopher Clark, Katie's longtime friend and colleague at Cornell University, describes what it took back in the 1960s for them to prove that humpback whales really were creating songs made up of persistent and repeating patterns of notes. To build that image, Katie and Roger had to use a machine that would produce a picture on a piece of paper that showed just a two and a half second voice print. They made hundreds of these individual pieces of paper and taped them together into long strips and put these strips in rows, one above the other, up on the side of their barn. And when they stood back and looked, voila, they could see the patterns they were hearing when they listened they could see the song as a musical pattern. Humpback 
whales as far apart as Mexico, Hawaii, Japan, and the Philippines essentially sing the same song. And each year, it's a different song. According to Katie, populations of singers progressively and collectively change the sounds and patterns within their songs throughout their lives and across generations. But if you keep listening for months on end and then for years on end, you discover that the song, each facet of it, is continually evolving to something slightly different. And all the whales in the ocean or in that singing population are changing their song in the same way. Hmm. So that was something I discovered. And in the end of the day, I had studied 32 years worth of songs, uh, many of them in two different populations. There's a lot about the way humpbacks riff off each other's songs that reminds me of the sea shanty craze on TikTok. Some say singing sea shanties help folks weather the COVID-19 lockdowns. Whatever the reason, millions of folks added their own twist to old classics, just as humpback whales build on each other's songs. Soon may the whaleman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tonguing is done, we'll take our leave and go. In just the past few years, studies of humpback whales living in the North Pacific Ocean reveal that population groups, once thought to be discrete, actually mix and mingle far more than previously thought. Once again, the evidence came by listening to their songs. Male humpback whales are actively interacting, literally remixing each other's songs. Listen carefully to this group of male humpback whales singing. The song starts with just one whale, but then a second and possibly a third one joins in. You can hear the lower, more distant tones in the background, which definitely indicates more than one whale. Those male humpbacks sang this collective song late at night in the fall of 2018, close to the Finn Island Research Station, located in Gitgat Territory, Hartley Bay, BC. Here's how Janie Ray, the lead researcher at the station, describes what she heard. It's pretty amazing to listen to a humpback whale compose a song. One whale will start up maybe just with a simple up-down swooping light call. He's really just practicing at first, changing one bit or another, but then another whale will pipe in, and that whale may add just a soft whoop, but then the timing changes. Two or three whales may do this together, like musicians jamming, and it can all sound really random at first, but then suddenly it evolves into this long, beautiful song that can truly melt your heart. By tracing the origins and mixing of the songs, scientists are gaining a better understanding of the complexities of humpback whale culture. Populations across the North Pacific are clumping up and splitting apart at different times in response to where their prey is, or what the ocean temperature is, or things we don't even know yet. And the same thing is happening in the Southern Hemisphere, Acknowledging these diverse cultures is necessary to understand and protect humpback whales. If a population is actually comprised of different cultural groups, then conservation efforts that treat all humpback whales as if they are the same are insufficient, 
and could lead to a loss of diversity. Happily, the population of humpback whales is rapidly growing along the BC coast. In 2004, 42 individual humpback whales were identified in the Camano Sound to Douglas Channel region of the North Coast. By the end of 2016, 10 times that number, 420 individual humpback whales were regularly using that area. Humpback whale numbers further south in the Salish Sea are also increasing. Humpback whale mums actively share their cultural connections to this historically important habitat with their calves, as John Kalambokaitis of the Cascadia Research Collective explains. As those whales returned to the Salish Sea, they not only started returning every year, they'd get used to it, but mothers with their calves that were born there, those calves would be returning themselves. So you saw not only the rediscovery of this area, but then how that, you know, transmission culturally, if you will, you know, from mother to offspring, uh, or from year to year with individual whales, then, you know, resulted in whales coming back into those and returning to those waters and now becoming a more loyal group of animals. In December 2020, researchers announced the discovery of a new population of blue whales hiding in the Indian Ocean. While it may be hard to wrap your head around the idea that the largest animals on Earth could be hiding, what's especially thrilling is that this population was discovered because of the unique songs they sing. population of blue whales singing a completely new song is another thrilling indication that blue whales too are more culturally diverse than imagined. Clearly sound shapes the evolution of diverse cultures of whales and those fabulous walruses and even fish. She'd been studying cavefish from Mexico looking at the sounds that cavefish make and she was able to record their sound and their behavior simultaneously. And she showed this amazing repertoire of sounds that they were making in all these different contexts. Um, it was really incredible. That's Professor Colin Brown, who we met in episode one. He's telling me about the work done by Dr. Carol Hyacinth, a research fellow at Harvard Medical School. When it comes to researching fish sounds and culture, clearly you have to have superhuman abilities. The biggest, the biggest problem is that fish are in water um, and cave fish not. is even worse because <laughs> they're in water in a cave in the dark, <laughs> which makes it even <laughs> more difficult. But hats off to this student. I mean, she got infrared cameras, got all of her gear abseiled into some of these caves and set up experiments in the caves. This is in addition to the stuff she'd done in the lab. So... I mean, that's just... You're raising the bar for the rest of the scientists out there. <laughs> that's amazing. So, of course, I couldn't resist giving Carol a call to ask her what it's like to rappel into a cave to study the acoustic culture of blind Astyanics cavefish. You, you also may want to train a little bit um, uh, before going, <laughs> like in a gymnasium or something. Uh, the one I did which was impressive to me was the Molino Cave, because uh, if my memory is correct, it was a 68 meter straight pit to go down on a single rope. Then you have to think that you also want to go up at the end of your experiment, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> 
What was it about these fish that made trips into dark, sticky mud, bat guano infested caves worthwhile? Carol tells me that these Astyanax fish come in two very different forms. The blind cave fish that inhabit about 40 caves in Mexico and a sighted colorful form that lives in rivers. If you keep a home aquarium, you would recognize them as the tetras you find in pretty much any pet shop. The blind morph originated when some tetras were swept into and trapped within permanently dark caves. Today they look and behave quite differently from the surface fish. Carol wondered whether their acoustic communication and its genetic basis also evolved to enable the cave fish to navigate and find food and mate in constant darkness. As these fish lost their vision, they have become far less aggressive in the cave conditions. Carol started with underwater microphones and video recorders in the lab. She patiently documented what sounds the fish made and eventually concluded that both surface fish and cave fish make six categories of sounds, clocks, clicks, sharp clicks, rumblings, and so on. Studying fish behavior without studying sound, Carol says, is like understanding only half the story. When I don't have the sound, it's like watching a movie, understanding half of the story, a part of the story, but not the entire story of what is happening. Once she had a handle on how both morphs were using sound in laboratory conditions, Carol headed into the wild to record cave fish in their natural habitats. There are striking differences between the behavior of those fish. The differences that we see may be in part also related to the different habitats in which the fish lives. So the, their environment may be related to their behavior in some way. And also this behavior then uh, will influence the sound production. And this is why we really think that if not an evolution of the sound itself, maybe an evolution of the use of the sound, in fact, between the two morphotypes. Carol discovered that how cave fish use sounds, what triggers them to do so, the meaning of their sounds and their reaction to the sounds is different than it is for the surface dwelling tetras. She'd found that some of the noises that were used in one context for the surface fishes were used for a completely different context in the cave dwelling um, species or, or they're really subspecies. Um, so, that, that's really amazing. I mean, not only is there diversity within species, but depending on whether they're living in caves or whether they're living on the surface, they change the, the noise um, that they're using. So it, it's really cool. It, does that start to get us closer to cultural difference? It certainly speaks to um, the possibility that there's some kind of um, cultural differences. But... I think it would be fair to say that as far as I'm aware, nobody has ever looked at cultural differences in sound production. But frankly, I'd be shocked if it wasn't happening. Is that because of your awareness of cultural traditions in ways other than sound? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've known about um, culture in fishes, gosh, for a really long time now, uh, probably 30 years almost, perhaps even longer. And, but I think we've increasingly realised how important culture can be, that there are lots of contexts um, related to movement and migration, spawning grounds, feeding grounds, and, and all these sorts of things that are culturally inherited in fishes. Um, but I suspect that we'll 
discover sooner rather than later that culture is is happening in, in the sound context as well. But I think that we're so early uh, in our investigations that it, it hasn't happened yet. Culture is one of those things that's kind of tricky to define even if you study it. Even anthropologists have squabbled over the term. Interestingly enough, studying ocean animals has actually helped some scientists clarify what culture is. How Whitehead studies the culture of whales and dolphins. Humans, he says, are particularly interesting. Our culture is incredible. There's no doubt about that. In many respects, no other species matches ours. But in quite a few respects, they do. And that can help us perhaps to better understand our own culture. We look at the ways humans are similar to other animals and at the ways they are different rather than just saying, we have culture and you don't. That's meant a profound increase in our knowledge as we discover the importance of sound underwater. The more we listen beneath the waves, the more we unlock not just the creatures, but the cultures in the sea. But what happens when these cultures have to compete with a cacophony of human-made noise? Tune into episode five of The Sound Aquatic, The Ocean and the Anthropause to find out. We'd like to thank John Kellenbokaitis from the Cascadia Research Collective, Cullen Brown of Macquarie University, Christopher Clark of Cornell University, Isabel Cote at Simon Fraser University, Carol Hyacinth at Harvard Medical School, Katie Payne of Cornell University, Janie Ray of BC Wales and the North Coast Cetacean Society, and John Ford, Scientist Emeritus at Fisheries and Oceans Canada. Thank you to On Being with Krista Tippett, Wild Bus Films, and Orca Lab for their contributions. This episode of The Sound Aquatic, The Ocean and the Anthropause was produced by Amy Kingdon, Katrina Pine, and me, Ellen Kelsey. Our theme music is by Tobin Stokes. The team also includes Adrian Mason, Jude Isabella, and fact checker Megan Osmond Jones. We are an endeavor of Hakai Magazine and are produced on the shores of the Salish Sea in Victoria, British Columbia.